Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. Our wonderful guest today is Mark Cloud Branson. Mark's from Pasadena in California, and he's Senior Professor of Practical Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. So welcome, Mark. So the first thing we want to do is give our listeners a flavor of who you are. So what's your journey through life? Give us an overview of who you are and what brings you to this place. Well, I grew up in Kansas. My dad was a carpenter, house builder, and there are so many ways that that um, heritage continues to show up in my own practices and life. But um, I'm in my mid-70s, um, which means there's a lot for three minutes intro. Um, early on, there were um, connections with God that I can name in a number of different ways, but over the years then, um, I've been involved in pastoral staff teams, I've done community organizing, community development, housing development. Um, I've worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was the dean of an African-American Bible Institute in San Francisco. And then when I was about 50, I was invited to come to Fuller Seminary and join the faculty here. And so that's kind of the variety of things. If anybody wants advice on career planning, I am absolutely worthless um, because none of, no move, none of those transitions had been predicted or made any sense. It was just um, God jumping in, intervening, inviting. Um, and an important part of all, uh, those steps, my wife, Nina uh, Lau Branson, um, Chinese heritage, and we've been married for um, a little over 40 years. And she's a spiritual director, um, is involved a lot in training others around the world in that particular work. And that's just been profoundly shaping on me too, as you would guess. So um, there's a little bit personal and professional. Is that helpful? Well, it'll get us in. It's good to get that kind of picture. Um, so this podcast we call Leaving Egypt, uh, which may, may sound strange, but what, what we're trying to get at here is that there's, there's, a, there's been a huge story that shaped us in the West. Um, and this story is encapsulated in... The way in which, for example, in the UK, Paul Kingsnorth talks about the machine, a way of life and technique that has shaped us and got into our bones. And in a sense, leaving Egypt is standing back and asking, how does the church see itself in this story? How does it respond? And so one of the words that we use for this story is that it's unraveling, that we, that we seem to be living in a time and in a society 
that no longer works, that no longer holds together, but is coming apart at the edges and unraveling. And in the conversations I have um, in the UK and other places, that language of unraveling is becoming familiar. People could talk about it. So what we'd be interested in is your own perspective on what you see going on in the United States particularly. As an American, what is the unraveling that you're seeing? What's the language that you would use to describe that? There's much of it fits. Um, one of the things about leaving Egypt is Egypt was still a pretty stable, powerful empire as um, the Israel nation left or to become a nation. Um, I, I don't think I'd go with that in the U.S. and that I think we are, the danger here is we really are a declining empire. And empires in decline can be dangerous. Um, and, uh, but, but there are all types of unraveling that are contributing to that declining empire. Um, f- on a personal note, just maybe that frames it for me. So I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, right? That's, those were my teen and early adult years. And this post-war, you know, robust economic uh, environment that then was met with civil rights movements um, with pretty amazing success in a pretty short time after centuries of, of nothing but wrong turns. Um, the anti-war movement against the machine at that point in Vietnam the anti-nuclear movement, same thing against the power of um, military stupidity and really ecological um, craziness around nuclear power, nuclear uh, weapons. All of that, for me, created a pretty optimistic um, future. Basically, look, we're making these changes. Um, we really are going to be a better society. We really are going to solve these particular challenges to the society. And we were wrong. Um, that's, especially in the last few decades, it's just become so apparent that these particular um, uh, sins underneath this empire are more powerful than those movements were. Um, and it's not just one or the other, but as somebody who grew up in that environment, um, the disillusionment was significant. I remember a book when I was in the middle of doing ministry that came out in the early 80s called When Dreams and Heroes Die. And that captured, for me, 80s, 90s, and since, that um, all of a sudden, all these things were being overturned. Um, and so that's the unraveling that I see. Um, and then in the last few years, um, you know, the ecological issues are worse. Um, the on one hand, you have this incredible oppression of uh, neoliberal capitalism. But on the other hand, you've got this pulling back uh, where the American corporations are trying to relocate the power more locally rather than because globalization wasn't creating quite what we wanted. And so all of those systems are in a certain amount of chaos. Um, And so there is a, I totally, uh, Alan, I get the unraveling and I see it at all types of levels. Um, and it's a declining empire in which we find ourselves. So, Mark, I'm really interested to know what you think about 
the effect of this unravelling on the church and, and on church leadership, for example, so that within that story, within that, if we take this metaphor of, of Egypt, what, what are the kinds of practices that sort of really belong to that empire and if we're, le- if we're mentally leaving Egypt, what are the sort of practices that perhaps have been affecting the church during that time that we need to unlearn or that we need to leave? What, what I'm thinking about is the way that, for example, this, uh, say, the last 40 years of individualism, that, that kind of what you just referred to, neoliberalism in terms of economics, but also in social terms, has um, had an effect on the way that people lead, you know, managerialism, overly professionalized, uh, programmatic practices. I know that you have a lot of thoughts around that. I'd, I'd just love to hear you reflect a bit on that. There is a leadership crisis in the church. We we all uh, speak to church leaders from time to time across all denominations, and we hear lots of stories of distress and um, confusion um, that church leaders are feeling what on earth is going on you know I wasn't prepared for this moment my training at seminary or theological college didn't didn't prepare me for this and you know looking around me the level of need you know in in the tower blocks the projects the housing estates around me for example is so overwhelming I can't possibly meet it and so I'm just wondering about what kind of formation um was the sort of standard norm for preparing a church leader mm-hmm. for what was that empire that is now unraveling? Um, give us a few. Yeah, Jenny, I, um, it's interesting. There, there are a lot of ways that um, the distress and confusion of clergy is one of the most hopeful signs for me. Um, the church was right in the middle of the founding of this empire with participation in slave trade, participation in mass genocide of native nations. Um, So the church was at the fundamental core of the biggest evils of the empire. And you can see that even recently at how much um, at least the evangelical church and the conservative wings of the Catholic church in the U.S. are part of the right-wing movement that is oppressive, it's racist, it's um, take care of our own and um, dissing um, migrants and the poor. So there's one level at which these um, trajectories have been consistent for hundreds of years. And the more there's an admission of confusion and distress maybe finally more and more of that can get challenged. Um, on the other hand, you do have the, the European Enlightenment's um, push through the society on the things you're mentioning, of individualism, managerial um, society, uh, rationalism, and those particular forms of um, social norms came through modern management theory right into the middle of the church for the last 100 years plus. Alan and I have written about this, that um, those particular resources for solving problems, fixing the church, are all totally misplaced. Um, In both of those trajectories, um, God is left out. 
um, because God's voice about justice and righteousness, God's voice about um, living life with and in the Trinity, um, the way that Jesus is in the streets with us, all of that, we may mix it in our language, but it's not mixed in our consciousness. It's not mixed in our desires, um, which is fundamental to how we worship and pray and love. And so um, the the church in the U.S., and again, uh, while I'm using generalities, there's definitely um, pockets of believers, groups of believers around that don't, that thanks be to God, are were not described in what I just described. Um, but certainly an incredible amount of the church is trapped inside um, those two rivers that I'm hoping they get increasingly confused and disoriented. So, Mark, it's interesting, your description, that what's happening to clergy, which is a massive disorientation in the unraveling, uh, you describe this is a hopeful sign. And so in the midst of seeing that, how do you see, well, two sides to this question. One, how do you see clergy generally responding to the unraveling and the disorientation. And then secondly, uh, perhaps, where do you see examples of that as a hopeful sign here in what's going on? Does that make sense? Yeah, let, let me try. Feel free to redirect. Um, yeah. We still have, I mean, every, every week in my inbox is one more conference, one more seminar um, that is going to provide the enthusiastic endorsement of the ways to solve all of this, right? Um, and, and so there's still a very lively, empowered, financed industry um, that is working within an imagination that doesn't name, doesn't look at the kind of things that we're talking about. Um, the If churches primarily present as a commodity, as a particular experience that needs to be marketed, as a particular um, high life, a way that I can have, um, I can find the products and the events to consume so that my desires are met. Um, that is still incredibly active. Um, and it's evangelistic and it's gathering people and leaders are being trained to do that well. So it's in that way, the church, if you're just asking um, about matters of decline, there's still a pretty energetic, um, performative, consumer-oriented church life in the U.S. And it is, again, it's inside those, um, those streams we were talking about. And that's why I wish there was more confusion. I wish there was was more despair, yeah. right? So that the the because there still seems to be a straight line to if I do X, yes. then Y will come. Yeah, no, we've got the answers. Also, um, so you're talking about that that performative uh, consumerist kind of church, um, but also that that fix it mentality mm -hmm. that you were referring to. You know, coming up with more and more solutions to arrest decline, for example, or more and more solutions to meet the needs 
of uh, society, of the unravelling around us. And that often is accompanied by that sense of distress. I can't meet those needs. Mm-hmm. That seems to be rooted in a an understanding of church leadership, which is somehow the rescuer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the church leader, him or herself, is is almost like the saviour. And and that's unsustainable, isn't it? That, that's very difficult. And you've said before, I know, about the roots of this, what we might call fix-it men- mentality, or you, you talked about modern management theory, you've talked about how God is left out. In the past, I know we've discussed things like things tend to get programmatized. So it's not just, I'm, I'm saying it manifests itself in the church that aims to serve the poor or the, the church that aims to be a service provider, as well as the church that is oriented to become a performance, you know, that worship is a performance. So it, it works in both camps. It works in the evangelistic camp, mm-hmm. but it also works in the social justice church camp. Both have a risk that, that God is somehow uh, subordinated um, I was wondering if you can sort of riff on that a bit for us. Where where does this fix-it mentality actually come from? And what, why has it found its way through into these two forms? I think all the denominations have manifestations of these two different types. I see it in the Catholic Church, I see it in the Anglicans, I see it in different streams of evan- evangelical churches. Um, and I, I suppose the difference is the question I would ask is, how close is that congregation to their neighbours? And mm-hmm. if if they're trying to be a, a service providing church, often the clue is in the language. If it's if it says like we're providing services or we're serving, or um, we're attempting outreach, um, the marginalised, all those pieces of language for me indicate that they're not in relationship with the people they want to help. You know, um, there's something has happened, a falling out of relationship there and getting trapped in this um, fix-it mentality. No, it's interesting, isn't it, that on one hand, so again, part of the seminary world when I was in seminary um, was the initial era of pastoral counseling, the therapeutic paradigm, right? Um, There are massive advantages to the world of, of psychology and psychotherapy that we all benefit from. I have, we have a son who uh, works um, in that world. And I think as clergy leadership in the 50s, 60s was losing its way for other reasons, um, it latched onto pastoral care as our job. So on one hand, you have this very personalized, very individualistic um, and God was or wasn't part of that. That was the mix. It was, um, we we bought this other trend of modernity. And that kind of personal individualized was going on at the same time we moved our social involvement to program, to not being individualized especially, to being how do we take care of um, the, the food or housing um, needs and while I'm all for as much of that as can get done, because in fact, structural problems created the disparities, and we just need all types of ways to ameliorate it. But for churches, it meant they lost the individual. They lost the person in it. And so you have this turned inward in the life of the congregation to my, um, whether it's 
feeling good about myself or fixing my psychological problems, all of that. And on the other hand, as we turned to our neighbor, it was programmatic. It was arm's length. Um, and again, these are generalities. and There are all types of, of ways to argue against what I'm saying. But, but these trends of modernity brought particular frameworks of here's how we can have some power and fix things. I can have the power to help a person with psychological problems. I can have the power to create food programs and housing programs. Um, and as you say, Jenny, I think you're absolutely right that it's a loss of, of life in the community, in the local. Um, whether it's the psychological issues or the hunger issues, we don't know our neighbors. And that's happening at a time where, as you know from the with industrialization, we had more and more um, the breakdown of the local. And humans were a commodity to be flexible and movable for the sake of the industry, for the sake of accumulating wealth at the top parts economically of the society. And so the local didn't matter uh, because creating a mobile workforce was the agenda. And that's still true to a huge extent. And the church ought to be the place where those different forces are countered, right? Where it's not about moving around for jobs, which we called vocations, even though it was just economic commodities. So how can the church be a place that you have a change of definition of vocation, where you have a change of understanding of, of neighboring, of caring for your neighbor, being known by your neighbors, mutual relationships instead of power relationships? where even psychological health is part of being a part of a community um, that, in fact, can be a healing place um, uh, psychologically. So all of those things, because they were formed inside those streams of modernity, the oppressive, the empire, the managerial, the individualism, and instead the church becomes a place that lives among its neighbors in a particular way that is whole, that is love, that is joy, that is realistic, um, that is sacrificial. It's just a very different approach to life that has so, been so completely uh, countered by what we think ecclesiology is in the last hundred years. Place is very important, isn't it? The, the, the relationship to place. Because bodies are important, right? I mean, our <laughs> Because we're embodied, we're embodied human beings. So it comes back to what kind of anthropology are we, are we basing? Mm -hmm this on you know what where does our faith lead us in terms of understanding what a human person is what what you're saying here about um mutuality and uh relationship to each other in a community in places of communion as it were this is where the church is profound can be profoundly countercultural in a in a economy in, in an econ economic system where we're now being groomed to understand that moving is a good thing. And back in the 80s, I can remember, it was seen to be very right-wing to say we should get on our bike and look, and look for a job. And now we're being told it's a sign of freedom. So it's sort of been deliberately reframed uh, to suit big business, hasn't it? So we're units on a spreadsheet oh, yeah. and we should be mobile and should be free, right. will, willing and see it as a form of freedom to move anywhere where actually that is completely antithetical to family formation and community stability. Right. Now, think about that number so, of words that get messed up on that, you know, what freedom means. Mm. And so... Mm. Um, yeah. so I wonder, Mark, um, 
in your own in your own worshiping community, the community you're a part of, there's if I understand, there is a, a kind of a shift going on there um, that's coming out of COVID around place and community and belonging. I wonder whether you want to talk about that a little bit because uh, it it really does connect with this sense of the local of subsidiarity of where we are. Share a little bit about what's going on in your own uh, church, church community. Yeah, I'm glad to do that. La Fuente is a, um, about 10 years old um, and here in our Pasadena community. Um, it's a bilingual church, Spanish and English. It's uh, in that way bicultural, but it's even, we would even say multicultural because only about half maybe of the church is Spanish primary, maybe 60, 70% are Latino, but an incredible number of, of um, biracial marriages and therefore kids that any kid walk into our environment is going to feel they belong because there's this diversity running around. Um, there's um, It's international in that we have um, both um, um, members with and without legal papers, documents. Um, and so we live in the midst of that very real mix, which is Pasadena, which is Los Angeles. And, but we're there because of the gospel, right? Um, one of our founding members who, who did pass away during COVID um, used to be really clear. She says, if it weren't for the gospel in La Fuente, I wouldn't be with any of you because I don't necessarily like a lot of you. There was a way that the gospel had penetrated for her in a way that she just couldn't avoid the fact that this was um, a life with Jesus together. And uh, she was obviously known as a bit of a blood speaker too. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's that life together that's very mixed. We all come in with different um, stories and so the practices of storytelling, where are your parents from? Where are you from? Why are you here? Why are you in this location? Why, uh, what brought you to La Fuente? Um, what, where have there been wounds in your culture? Where have there been wounds in cross-cultural um, relationships? Where have you seen God's grace in your culture? Where have you seen God's grace in cross-cultural relationships? It's that storytelling and that goes, um, that's in the midst of, we do a lot of Lectio Divina. So regularly, instead of a sermon, um, and our preachers, are, are the main preachers, really good. Um, but we just do a com complete community discussion of Lectio Divina. And the church is totally bought into that. Um, they just love when we say we're going to do this. They even know, start getting their circles of chairs together. Just to be clear, Mark, can you, Tell us your this denomination of your church. Uh, it's Nazarene, Wesleyan. So th this is fascinating for a Catholic listener <laughs> that you're doing Lexio, okay, um, and that it's so embraced by your congregation. Yeah, there's some influence that I've had there because some of the early founders were my students at Fuller. Um, before I even got involved, for Nina and I got involved at the church, so it was already something that was seen as a way to live life with the Spirit and the text and each other. Um, and there was just growing trust that the Spirit on a Sunday or at other gatherings was going to lead us into the text in a way that changed coming out of the text into our neighborhoods. And when you talk about storytelling, 
Is, is that an intentional uh, time, you know, during the week that you do it? And how, what does it look like in practice? Very irregular. Um, we do, the pastor's often looking be, just through relationships, um, what stories would be important for the congregation to know on just a part of Sunday morning. We used to talk about testimonies as Wesleyans, right? So it's, so much of it is that, although we are, uh, testimony became my canned story that conforms to others. Um, and that's not at all what these are. These are stories of, of where have you seen God um, and what difference is it making? And uh, So does that happen in a small group or in a congregation setting? Both. Um, it happens this yeah. last weekend, Nina and I were leading a retreat with 30 of our leaders. And we're a small, Sunday mornings we're maybe 40 together and 20 online, so it's not a a large church. There's probably a hundred people that would say this is their community. Um, but this this practice of storytelling extends into other areas. You, you've told me before about the, the stories you've told about money. I'd love if if you would share something of that because mm -hmm. a lot of your congregation members may be from well, mixed backgrounds in terms of income, let's say, and. What you told me, I'd love you to share that, the intimacy that comes from uh, sharing the reality of your financial situation, which people wouldn't guess would be something necessarily um, to be a spiritual practice. Uh, yeah, there's been a number of discussions. The, some of my better stories were from a church back in the 80s and 90s that Nina and I were part of, where we were regularly using many autobiographies. Um, that's been a part of some smaller conversations at this church rather than the whole church at this point. Nina's, in fact, helped with some of the young adults starting to tell money autobiographies as a way of rethinking vocation and, and place and all of that. Um, and I wasn't part of those, but what we've seen, both in the way I've used the money autobiography in classes at Fuller, but also um, in two other, uh, other churches when we were at different locations, um, that money is often an important way, um, because we all know that the Bible talks about money, but we still don't know how to talk about money. And the society so endorses accumulation and consumer preference. Those are the only things that matter, accumulation and consumer preference. Um, that instead, if money is simply part of being embodied, landed, I mean, by which I mean place, people, then being able to talk about here are important memories of even just saying, what are some painful memories of money growing up? And what are some good, memorable use um, stories about money and growing up? Just that question surfaces so much. Um, and so it's this autobiographical, but it's saying it's okay to talk about money. And then in, in those previous churches, we even had a number of people who just kind of voluntarily as families once a year would get together and say, you know, here's what matters to us about money. Here's what it looks like in our budget. Any feedback on that? Just to demystify, to disempower money as a subterfuge to the gospel um, and instead just let it be part of who we are. Um, yeah, those have been profound. Is, is some of this um, rooted in the sort of ancient Hebrew um, meanings around money? I know there are words for loan and things like mm -hmm. that that are much closer to relationship than 
we in the in modern world would un- would understand. Yeah, no, the you know the moving of money into coins and into electronic transfers and all that um, really did change the shape of what how resources and community can work. Right, that's why it's even hard in the U.S. to do things like co-ops. Um, so there's just this impacts how you then structure work and how you structure a neighborhood and a community. So within within a group like that, which is sharing those really quite revealing stories, because, I mean, everybody knows if you look at someone's bank account, you know, you, you learn a lot about them. So when people are put in that position, mm-hmm. uh, to share it for no other reason really other than, as you say, to demystify or to become accountable to fellow to your fellowship, your fellow Christians... Does that then lead to mutual support sometimes? Yeah, it's interesting. This, um, in, in two of the previous churches, we actually found that a lot of these practices did increase things like when there were financial hardships of covering rent, of covering mortgage payments even. Um, and in our own congregation, there's a lot of that that goes on because, again, we've got undocumented people uh, where we're doing a lot of support um, for not only people in our church, but people in the community where we work on the immigration rights. We help pay for the salary of a, of a full-time lawyer who works on immigration rights. We're in the Southwest U.S., where this is a massive part um, of our life. And Los Angeles itself is 50% Latino. So um, that means that the flows across that border, but also you've got Asian um, migration here, both legal and illegal, and our church fundamentally understands those issues differently than our government does, right? And so that does mean that because papers have to do with money, have to do with whether you can have a bank account, all of these things are related. So how do we develop an alternative local life in the midst of those structures, what, what's interesting me about this is that you're doing this as a congregation, as a church, mm-hmm. rather than outsourcing it to a charity. Mm-hmm. As, as a group of people, you're actually deciding to do this among you. Um, right. And even we support other nonprofit organizations that are doing this because there are needs for structures. Um, we yeah. can't do all of the, the legal and governmental work regarding papers. So we'll will give money to an organization that actually was founded in another church that helps do those things. And our associate, one of our associate pastors is full-time in that immigration rights organization. So these are all woven together um, for us. They just flow, um, they intermingle. But, it, but what you're not doing is keeping it at arm's length. Right. You know, this is something that's personal for the people in your congregation who are getting personally involved. I'm just thinking of um, Pope Francis and his World Day of the Poor letter uh, last year um, was talking about no more proxies. Mm-hmm. He's saying stop outsourcing. This is personal. You know, the culture of encounter between human beings at the local, uh, real relationships uh, is really what, what matters, and this is where, where the church needs to shift to. Yeah, this is our neighbors. It's the people sitting next to me on Sunday morning. Um, well, that, that's, the, that's the critical difference, isn't it, is that if I'm listening to what you're saying, is that these are the people sitting beside me on a Sunday morning. They're not the people out there who are projects. And mm-hmm. that's the, somehow that's the fundamental shift, which is that the, what forms us as a congregation 
is not one single economic group, so to speak. It's something else. And out of that, all that you're describing is taking place, which is probably, well, for a lot of churches, that, that's, a, a, that's a strange thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to have, have that. Well, I, I'm asking the, the, the yeah. actual. Yeah, no, you, and Jenny had mentioned this earlier. I mean, that the diversity of vocations, work, jobs is amazing. We've got a number of academics. Um, we have people who do yard work and landscaping. We have people who cook and bake. Um, it's just a, uh, bankers. So there's just a huge diversity. Um, in the church, and all of that's respected, all of that's treasured, um, and just openly part of our relationships. So one of the things that that's motivating us is out of this unraveling, in which, of course, we may be for some time. You know, this unraveling period may go on for years. Yes. I mean, some people, somebody said to me recently, how long is it going to take? You know, when are we going to come out of it? I don't think there's such a thing as a... no. As a non-unraveling society, no, no, but but equally, um, what we're listening out for is where are these new forms of association that are coming up from the grassroots? Where is the new energy? Where is the Holy Spirit bringing uh, new life into, say, what we might call communities of place mm-hmm. or places of communion, where that kind of encounter happens? And I hear that in the story you've just told us. Um, but also, you mentioned, you know, structures are important. And I, I know that you've also been involved in um, an initiative around solar energy, which is engaging um, what we might call disadvantaged communities, but also solving the energy problem, and particularly around local supply of energy, which, given recent developments with the Ukraine war and so on. Certainly in Europe, it's shown us the fragility of depending on um, sources of energy from too far away. You know, we're we're getting to a point now where with global supply chains breaking down, it's going to be more important to have food and energy security that's closer to Mm -hmm. home. So I'd I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that model that's emerging. I know it's in the middle of development, but just, just share with us how that's beginning to take shape. Yeah, this is um, a good friend for decades, um, working alongside a scientist, basically a, what really is a disruptive technology for solar panels. It's um, a complete shift in how solar panels can work. Um, all proven now, the scientific papers are out there. We've already produced the panels. They're in the last phase of approval. And so one hand, it's a... It's a technology that's new and improved. Current solar panels are incredibly hard to recycle, and they last about 25 years. So we've got benefit of solar power, but we're creating other problems as we do that. Um, And um, 80, 85% of them are produced, that the U.S. consumes, are produced in Asia. So you've got all the transportation issues, too, and supply chain issues, which um, are all part of running and international neoliberal economics, right? So that's part of the problem. And so with this new technology where we can make solar panels in a micro factory and the patents are held in such a way that they're only being made available to nonprofit organizations in marginalized communities 
where all the jobs then are in the midst of where the jobs are needed. So local jobs, local economics, small factories of 60 to 100 people who are also then gaining skills to work in other local small manufacturing businesses. So instead of a, a mega factory um, off in the desert, which is the way most of these things are done now, um, we can build dozens of factories in marginal communities and then have both the jobs and the income from those jobs and then the power distribution. We can actually include renters through microgrids, which is something that you can't do now where, um, say, a school could be covered with the panels and the, and the electricity would come at free or discounted rates to renters or low-income people. So there's just huge disruptive approaches to the economics in addition to the disruptive um, scientific invention. And what for me, what I'm seeing happen is as I connect with local nonprofit organizations, it's a, this is about neighborhoods. Can we find the organizations that know their neighbors, their neighbors know them, and they're already in life together? And that group then comes together and we work alongside them to develop the competencies and to hire the people who can build and manage the factory, which now we, we know how to do and we've already done. And they do have to weave with government forces because you have to have permits, you have to have um, other things going on. So it's you've, you've got all levels of um, the so existing social structures um, but it's all done because you're talking with your neighbors in the local nonprofit. And that's the only way the permit, the patents will be available, is if that's the reality on the ground. Otherwise, they simply won't get the permission to use the permits. Um, this, this sounds really brilliantly thought through. I, I wonder about the ownership and governance of, of each local iteration, each local factory. How is, how is that managed? Um, We've got certain specifications of what it takes, what are required of the local nonprofit and its and its government, its its mutuality on the ground, um, who in fact is there. So a government entity can't simply come in and name a board and start something. It's got to be locally owned. And what what what's the involvement of the church or churches at grass grassroots level? Yeah, in a number of these, um, it wasn't a. Um, there was some involvement among some um, theologians and Christians in the first factory. The second factory is with uh, Homeboy Industries, which is a Roman Catholic outreach in East Los Angeles that's very well known and very well respected, has worked more in um, uh, post-gang life and post-prison life individuals. They already have done industry along the line of, of um, restaurants and T-shirts and other smaller things, but are really well-equipped to take on something like this. And part of the advantage of the years of ministry that I've had is I do have connections in almost any city in the country and the non, the Christian churches there, the grassroots groups. And so they are often, they can be the ones that then pull together these groups. It's um, The organization isn't explicitly a faith organization at all. There are some of us who are of faith and we're really respected. I'm openly called the theologian and, and all of that is very honored. And it's intriguing to me. We had a big um, 
uh, factory tour not long ago with uh, people from L.A. County itself has 80-some cities. So it's just huge, complex government structures. Many of their green officers working on ecology issues were there. And it was amazing to the founder of the organization how many people named God or how many people named some Christian connection with their reason for being involved in economics. Um, and so even though it's not a top-down theological Christian um, entity by any means, simply as Christians in the neighborhood on the ground, by being local, um, the church will, can easily be a part of this. But it's striking to me how um, the design of this, the architecture of this, if you like, is so resonant with what uh, the body of thinking known as Catholic social mm -hmm. teaching would recommend. And for people that don't know what, about that tradition, you know, it's really about upholding the dignity of the human being, upholding the integrity of the human being. And you've described this as quite different from, you know, like a, a mega energy uh, company supplier that's highly centralized, that has many branches and so on. This is really devolved. And the principle of subsidiarity mm -hmm. in Catholic social teaching seems to me perfectly um, demonstrated in this model, which is that um, things should be done as local as possible, you know, uh, that something that, that can be done more locally shouldn't be done by a higher authority. And it sounds to me like that's that's what's happening. Um, and given that the supply of energy is so fundamental to the health and flourishing of a community and and the instability that, that the global economy is going through and it's likely to continue to go through, this is vital for the thriving of families. And, and again, for Catholic social teaching, the family is the building block of society. It's absolutely critical that that is underpinned so that this local supply of energy can be owned and run and administered locally on a sustainable basis. Um, it sounds like a, an amazing model. If people wanted to find out about this, I know it's not completely sort of launched yet or not entirely. How would they go about uh, learning more about this? Um, I believe website-wise, um, the name of the organization that's easiest to remember is CHIRP, C-H-E-R-P-L-G-P, for Locally Grown Power. So chirplgp.org and all of the info there. The, I mean, the patent papers are up there, the scientific articles are up there, the How to Start a Factory handbook is up there. So it's all very and is, openly is there out. something, could, could you, as, as the... The honoured theologian in <laughs> on the board, um, could you reflect on on the scriptural roots of this? Because you must have thought about that a lot. It might be things in the Old no, Testament. No, I love being that asked are, that. Um, yeah, there's a number of places for me that are that um, fit this. One is in Jeremiah, in the midst of the absolute collapse of of Israel. Um, and the forced march across the desert to Babylon. Um, it's just very basically, God said, set up local life. I'm there. Um, you know, build houses, um, plant gardens, have families. It's that kind of, um, and pray, pray for the people there. Um, live life among there. In their shalom, you will have your shalom. And so this is simply a way seven. of shalom is local. So shalom is embodied. It's on the ground. It's in the dirt. Um, and for, and in that context, you can have relationships. 
Um, and so for me, that's what we're offering is, a, is one more way locally to have relationships that in which we are embodied in conversation. Our money is there, our livelihood is there. Um, all of that is encouraged in this model. I'd like to um, I'd like to take a crack at summarizing a little bit this conversation we've just had, Mark, and get your uh, response to it. We we talk about leaving Egypt, and part of what you said very early on is, well, yeah, I get that, but actually, we are Egypt. Um, the United States is not something you leave, like, we are the empire, and we are a crumbling empire. Uh, we are an empire that in so many ways is unraveling and has unraveled. And our churches in the midst of that have been have been partners and participants in that empire in so many ways so that as it unravels, our churches and our leaders particularly find themselves in the midst of a deeply disorienting unraveling. And then you made this really... Wonderful little turners, and and that's a hopeful thing. Um, and then in this conversation, you turned to that hopefulness and began to talk about that which was going on on the ground in the local where you dwell, uh, both in your church and in this sort of um, initiatory piece with solar panels. And what struck me there, uh, as we come near the end of this. Thing, is that what you're pointing out is in the midst of the crumbling empire, there are, God is at work and there are relational engagements going on on the ground amongst God's people. And the picture I got was there aren't a bunch of big deal people making plans and strategies there are just ordinary people on the ground coming together in relationship. And out of that, amazing things begin to bloom, like the paneling materials that you're describing. Uh, so that, that's what I'm hearing. I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but am I, am I getting at what you're the story you're telling? Um, yeah, there really is gospel. There really is good news. Um, and yeah. the good news isn't, because we're going to re-ravel, re whatever the term would be for unraveling. Um, but it's it's saying that's that's the chaos in which we're in. I, I don't think we're going to get on top of global warming. I don't think we're going to have this pure democracy that all of a sudden voting and, and all of that is honest and upfront and mutual. I just don't think those could happen. Um, what does it mean to be God's people in the midst of that chaos? And first of all, we need to be confused. We need to we need to lament. We need to be disoriented. We need to say we don't have the power to fix this. And so, what's it mean to love love God and love your neighbor? Um, right? <laughs> can we do that? And if we do that, we can do that in the midst of this powerful woundedness, this amazing chaos. Um, a friend, Michael Buddy, is a Catholic social economist, ethicist, um, and we talk a lot about uh, these things. And his work kind of um, often will name 
what we're talking about is unraveling, but this diminishing, collapsing empire. And then what's ecclesiology about? And as a Roman Catholic, it does have to do with parish. Um, not often in the way that parish is even understood in my country in either Catholic or other traditions. But it is the local, very mixed, very plain group of people who are loving God and loving each other. Um, and I think Buddy is often very, is one of, for me, one of the clarifying voices um, on these without, um, um, without avoiding the incredible difficult challenges we've got both in the society and the ecology, but also in the, the churches that we've inherited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that um, what you've described, um, Al, as a, you know, the American empire, this, this is affecting the UK. In fact, it's affecting all the Western countries, all the Western countries that have bought into the same system. So we share in this, um, this Egypt, this unraveling, but what I'm hearing from you, Mark, is this beautiful story of the vocation of the church emerging through this, this, is, this unfolding. And you used at the beginning this lovely language of God inviting you, shaping you, and um, that sense of how do you adopt that kind of posture where you're attentive enough to hear um, God calling uh, not just you, but others, as, you, as you've described it, who are being called to form these these new forms of association, which are naturally emerging from the ground up, and it it feels to me like this is the the true freedom that we we're promised in in God in Christ, as opposed to the false freedom that Egypt, the empire, is is offering us through buying stuff, products, and services, and becoming enslaved to that, um, that empire. And what you're talking about with this, um, the journeying together in those local communities where the church is amongst and involved in, not necessarily the centre of activity, but is somehow an animating uh, saltiness mm -hmm. in, that, in that life. And part of that is, I hear you saying, is a kind of accompaniment of people um, in the struggles of their of their daily lives, well, each other's daily life. So it's not an us and them. It's a it's a mutual. It's a reciprocal feeling, um, way of living together. And it, I'd just love to hear. Perhaps we we need to wind up. But your thoughts on? I know you use the the language of vocation in America often to refer to to work and to jobs. But I'm using it here in terms of God's calling. And, and how a church leadership in this kind of space, you know, what does it mean to be a leader who is able to accompany people and help them in that listening, in that discernment of where is the spirit moving in the local? What is God doing in the neighbourhood? How do we help people sense that in their own lives, the movement of that in their lives? I mean, the gospel really is fundamentally a new vocation. Um, it's not just a set of theological beliefs. It's not a list of moral and ethical behaviors. It's a it's a conversion to a different vocation. Paul writes, I think it's Ephesians 4, be worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And the you there is plural, and it's addressed to the church. Um, so my church is called to be worthy of the calling. We together are called. I can't do it without them. 
they can't do it without me. And the calling there, if it's rooted in Ephesians 1, is all things are coming together in Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. And God's not just doing that in the seventh heaven. God is doing that in the streets where I live and in um, in the streets and alleys, um, encampments all over the world. And if all things are coming together in Jesus Christ, first of all, you need to say, that's absolutely crazy. Or you can say, okay, I want to see it. And in desire to see that, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer starts with, hallow your name, God. And it's a command we give to God. Do this. Hallow your name. And the way God hallows God's name is to be visible. God, hallow your name in the streets of Pasadena. God, hallow your name in our neighborhood. But we better not tell God to do that unless we're watching, looking, Mm -hmm. perceptive. And so we've got to be committed to watching for, discerning is the word we often use, what God is doing in the streets. That means I've got to be in the streets, right? (laughs) Um, And it's not necessarily, and even often, as often, going to happen in the sanctuary. Um, I'm all for sanctuaries. I'm very much for gatherings for worship, um, as it's been a tradition for us. But then what does it mean to pray the Lord's Prayer and to be in a community with my church that has this call together to pray the Lord's Prayer and to live into loving God and loving neighbor? That's the core of the gospel. It's a new vocation. And we need to tell, we can talk about that and even talk about his vocation, which is a nice disruptive way to talk to our neighbors um, because they've, most of them know the bill of goods they've been sold about vocation and job is destructive. And so it's a way to help, um, in their terms and language that's already available to us, call for people to encounter the gospel. I think that's a, an amazing place to conclude our conversation, Mark. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. Well, I, uh, Ditto, I love both of you. I am so appreciative of the, um, of the way that you work toward the kind of conversations that we need for the church to claim its vocation. Mm. Mark, thanks. As, as with Jenny, this has been a wonderful conversation that simply whets the appetite and helps us to see that leaving Egypt is not escaping from something, but it's being called into a whole vocation of joining with God. So thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon. Mm -hmm.